Some of you got to meet Dr. Stephen Toole uh, this morning. Uh, Dr. Toole has been uh, uh, somebody I've known and been a friend since before I went to seminary, believe it or not. Uh, one of my best friends from uh, college, from my undergrad, married his niece and actually found each other on, I don't remember what the site was. It was a dating site. They found each other on like eHarmony or something. And so it's eHarmony that hooked me up with Dr. Toole originally. <laughs> that sounds bad, though. Um, but uh, so when I was looking at going to seminary, I had some of those conversations with Dr. Toole before I even went. Uh, and uh, when I went to visit Pittsburgh Seminary, uh, sat in on one of Dr. Toole's classes and had a great time with him. He was very encouraging. Sort of funny, when we left Pittsburgh Seminary, my wife and I looked at each other in the car ride home and said, nope, that's not the place for us. We, we, uh, we weren't sure. We did not like the city. We didn't want to live in Pittsburgh and just didn't feel like it was for us. We had a great time with Dr. Toole, but we sort of felt like, no, that's not the place. And then about two weeks before seminary was supposed to start, I got a letter about some financial aid, actually a lot of financial aid. And it was like God gave me a $30,000 directive that I'm going to go there. And uh, I'm very glad that God did. Uh, and God brought me there and uh, very glad for my relationship with Dr. Toole. We were commenting earlier, I think I only actually had one class with Dr. Toole on the Minor Prophets, the Book of the Twelve. And uh, but we have been uh, been friends, many a lunch together. And I got to see him uh, at retreats over the years and especially last year at the pastor's retreat in the fall, uh, which Dr. Toole taught at. And uh, uh, I said, I got to have you come in and speak uh, for my people. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about this church and I, I, I want to celebrate with you is is the hunger for learning that happens around this church, that I get a lot of questions about stuff I'm talking about and people want to come to Bible study and people want to go deeper and people appreciate uh, some of the depth that I try to bring in my sermons. And uh, I, it's one of the things I'm most thankful about all of you is that when God put us together, he put me with people that wanted to go deeper. And um, so I'm honored always to bring some of my friends to hear for you to hear so that you can go deeper with them and not just me. And Dr. Toole is one of those guys. Dr. Toole knows what he's talking about. He can talk about a lot of these texts in the Hebrew and he can talk about a lot of the, the other literature going on in the, the Near East throughout a lot of these texts. But he also is a guy with a heart for Jesus Christ. He's also a guy that understands that the word isn't the end all be all and the academic study isn't the end all be all. It's meant to produce fruit in your life. It's meant to be a, a window we look through so that we understand and meet God. And uh, so uh, I'm honored to have him here to share some of that knowledge and wisdom with you. Uh, so I'm gonna read the first scripture and then he's going to come forward and read the second scripture. I'm in the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, starting in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to my, into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. 
No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred year old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they were yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. Whoa, am I coming through? Yes, I am. Good, good. Hear these words from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can we pray together? Now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. For you alone are our strength and our redeemer. Sweep over us, Lord, with the wind of your spirit and Grant that these words would burn in our hearts as living word. For it is in Jesus' 
holy name, himself called the word of God that we offer our prayer. Amen. In the time before worship, we were sharing together about the Old Testament, the left-hand side of the Bible. I've just shared with you a passage from the far right-hand side of the Bible, the book of Revelation, just inside the back cover of your Bible, would seem to be about as far as you could get from the front. Uh, it's a long way from Genesis to Revelation. And yet, the book of Revelation is closely connected to the Old Testament. If you do a Bible study of the book of Revelation, you're going to wind up doing a study of the Old Testament because nearly every verse of this book quotes from or refers to a passage, usually multiple passages, over on the left-hand side of the Bible. We could hear that this morning. Uh, Jordan read a text from Isaiah 65, and then we heard John's vision from Revelation 21, and the connections are so plain when we hear them so close together that John is responding to and building on the vision that we find in Isaiah 65. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that John didn't have a vision. I certainly am not saying that John was just cribbing from Isaiah. What I am saying is that John was steeped in the scriptures. That he ate and drank and breathed the air of these ancient texts to the point that these words, these images became a part of him. So, of course, when John received a revelation from God, God reveals God's self, God reveals God's future in the language, in the images that make sense to John with which he is most at home. And in this case, specifically from Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 comes from a time after the end of the Babylonian Empire's exile of the people in Israel. Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem, demolished the temple, the last king in David's line had been taken away in chains to Babylon, and the Babylonians seized huge chunks of the population and deported them to Babylon. But 
after 50 or so years, Babylon itself had been conquered by another power. And exiles had begun making their way home. They had begun rebuilding their homes, rebuilding their villages, rebuilding their temple, rebuilding their lives. It ought to have been a joyous time. I mean, this is what Ezekiel, what Jeremiah, what the prophets had said would happen, that God would bring God's people back home. And here they are. And yet, it was a time of frustration and confusion for many. We can understand why this would be. Rebuilding is hard work, isn't it? If you've ever started a project and realized that it had become so hopelessly messed up, that all you could do is scrap it and start over again. You know how that feels? Perhaps you're here today and you have had to rebuild after a fire or a flood or a storm. You know how hard it is, how frustrating it is to start again, to rebuild Perhaps you're here and you've been on a mission trip in an area stricken by natural disaster and you've helped rebuild homes or schools or churches and you know how hard that work is. But it wasn't just that the work was hard. It was that what should have been a time of reunification and joy had become instead a time torn apart by the same old divisions and prejudices and frustrations to the point that when they finished the temple, the priests who were in charge of the temple, refused to permit many members of the community to take part in worship because they weren't good enough. They weren't pure enough. So the prophet looks for the fulfillment of God's promise beyond history. I'm about to create new heavens, a new earth, a new creation, a new Jerusalem, where at last we might get it right. I'm about to create Jerusalem as a joy, as Jordan read to us. It's people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight In my people, no more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. The prophet envisions a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. But the prophet's imagination, the prophet's vision can only go so far. 
The prophet can't imagine a world free of labor. Although he does imagine a world in which they shall not labor in vain. A world without conquest, a world without exile, so that they shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. This prophet can't wrap his head around the idea of a world without death. But the prophet does say, that in that world, surely everyone will live out a lifetime in full. <laughs> I, I, I am, I'm sure many in this room, like me, will remember the text in the Psalms, Psalm 90, verse 10, that says, Their days shall be threescore years and ten. I hear it in my head in the King James. 70 years, which was about as old as anyone in Israel could imagine possibly being in that time, in that context. Or, gosh, maybe, maybe four score, maybe 80, as a rare exception. They didn't dream of the possibility of more than that. But the prophet says that in the new Jerusalem, somebody who is 100 years old will be, required, will be regarded as a boy. as just a youth just starting out. And the prophet says that in that New Jerusalem, there shall no more be an infant that lives but a few days. Oh, friends, our memories are so short. But I invite you to take a walk through an old cemetery and count the monuments that mark the graves of children a few years old, less than a year old. The terrible scourge of infant mortality is not the terror for us that it once was, but just a generation ago, not that long ago, every household knew what it was to lose a child. And God help us still today in parts of our world, in parts of our own country. This continues to be the case. God help us find ways to minister to those folk. But this prophet says that no, no, in, in the world that God will bring into being, there will no longer be this tragedy, this scourge. God will wipe away all their tears, the sound of weeping, will not be heard because God will be near and attentive. God will be listening for us. The prophet says, speaking the words of the Lord, before they call, God says, before they call, I will answer while they are yet speaking. I will hear. In Revelation, 
John looks into the future through that lens, through that Isaiah 65 lens. But John is also looking through some other lenses. John is looking through Jesus' lenses. God is looking into the, John is looking into the future that God is revealing to him through the lens of the victory of Jesus Christ and the hope and transformation that that brings. And so John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Yes. <clears throat> For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And this is weird. The sea was no more. That's a surprise. And a disappointment if you like the beach. Uh, the sea was no more. In the ancient world, in the ancient world, the sea was regarded as a symbol of chaos and disorder. For reasons you can understand if you've ever seen a storm at sea. Waves tossing in every direction. The sea was understood as a symbol of the powers that were opposed to the creative and ordering will of God. And so John says, in the world that God is bringing into being, in the world where God's purpose is finally fully accomplished, there will not even be the possibility of evil or rebellion. No sea, no ambiguity, no confusion, not anymore. John says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be not just rare, but no more. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first thing. The first things have passed away. And all of this is true. John is persuaded because John can see something that the prophet in Isaiah 65 can only glimpse, can only catch the edge of. The prophet says that in that day, God will be attentive to us. God will listen to us. God will be near before they finish speaking. I will answer. But John says, see, the home of God is among mortals. God will live. In our midst, he will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. God himself will be with them. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no separation. No need for reconciliation. No experience of distance. God will be very near. Very near. No wonder. The one seated on the throne says, See, I am making all things 
new. I am making all things new. Now we need to be careful here, friends. Because when we hear this language, when we hear John's vision of the world that God is bringing into being, God's future, it's easy for us to think that since this first heaven and this first earth will pass away, that they they don't matter, that they are unimportant. It's possible for us to think that we don't need to care for this world. We don't need to conserve resources. We don't need to tend this planet because it is passing away. We could think that we don't need to worry about the troubles that tear at this world. We don't need to worry about feeding the hungry, about clothing the naked. We don't need to worry about violence. We don't need to worry about racism because this world is passing away and we should focus our attention on the world to come. Oh, friends, in the little church where I grew up, some of our hymns sounded like that. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. (laughs) My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Can we hear, friends, that that is good and bad? The good thing is the realization that God's dream, God's fulfillment of God's promise is sure. But the problem becomes when we think that God is somehow calling on us not to be concerned about this world, about this life, about the people that surround us. I know that's not what John is saying because of what John goes on to say. He hears the one seated on the throne say, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So it's as though John were writing, I am the A and the Z. I am the A and the Z. Now, one way we could look at that is that God is at the beginning and God is at the end. God was there at the beginning to bring the world into being and then God went off somewhere for pizza and left the world to wind down on its own, but God will show up again at the end to bring the world to a close and usher in what comes next. I don't think that's biblical, friends. The God that I meet in the whole of Scripture is a God who is deeply concerned and deeply connected and deeply involved with this world. God who takes 
sides in Egypt. God who takes the side of the suffering slaves of the people of Israel and brings them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God who leads God's people through the wilderness. God who finds for them a home. A home for homeless people. God who continues to speak through prophets like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, like Jeremiah, like Nahum, like Habakkuk, like Micah. And this ought not be news for us, Christians. This ought not be news for us. John 3.16, probably the most famous passage in the New Testament, sometimes held aloft at sporting events or showing up on tattoos, God help us. Uh, John 3.16 says that God loves. Yeah, God loved the world. God loved the world. God loved the world so much that God sent God's only son. God loved the world so much that God came into the world as one of us in the person of Jesus to live life as we live it. Born as a baby, growing up, living life as we live it. He healed, he taught, he ate with sinners. At the end, he became a victim of our violence, our sin, our evil. And he died, as every single one of us knows, we will one day die. That certitude that the prophet in Isaiah 65 somehow couldn't get beyond. But John says no. John says that in the world to come, death is no more. And John can say that because of what happened to Jesus. Here in this season of Eastertide, Christians, we celebrate that Jesus didn't stay dead. Amen? Amen. Jesus didn't stay dead. He died, yes, but he triumphed over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And his victory becomes the proof of your victory and of mine. Victory. That's why John can say that in the world to come, in the world where God's dream finally reaches its full fruition, death will be no more. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the A and the Z. We have an expression in English, don't we? A to Z. And when we say A to Z, we don't mean just A and Z, right? We don't mean just the stuff at the beginning and the stuff at the end. We mean everything in between, everything from A to Z. And I am persuaded 
That's what John means here. When John talks about God's plan, about God's future, God's past, God's present, God's eternity manifest in this passage, that God is the Lord of the, of the beginning, yes, the creator. God is Lord of the ending, yes. God will bring the tangled web of history together and bring the world to its fruition. But God is also the Lord of all the stuff in between. Thanks be to God, because that's where I live. That's where we live. In between, in the messiness in between. Everything from A to Z, friends, everything from Alpha to Omega, God is the Lord of the whole of history, which means that I can live my life in my world in confidence, not in despair, but in confidence, trusting that ultimately, finally, the Lord will bring this universe to fruition. It's a realization that brings hope, but it is not a realization that ought to permit me to let go of this world and this life. I matter. You matter. Your life matters. This world matters to God. God loves the world. And this world contains the seeds, if you will, of the world that is to come. The world that God will bring into being. The God who is going to bring new heavens, new earth, and a new Jerusalem. Thanks be to God. Amen.